This is the Auto Body Podcast, presented by Clarity Coat. We'll get stories and talk to people from all over the industry. Painters, body guys, manufacturers, and anybody in between. Let's do it. Welcome to the Auto Body Podcast. Auto Body Podcast. Presented by Clarity Coat. Now, here's your host, Adam Huber. Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. Today we have David Caulfield, the owner of Fix Auto Anaheim North and the CEO of Flashback Forward Incorporated. David, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me, Adam. Not a problem. Um, so I kind of mentioned this to David earlier, but David has pretty much the exact same setup as I do, which is greatly appreciated. And I'm sure our <laughs> listeners greatly appreciate it because the last couple of episodes have been a, a little struggling on the audio front. <laughs> yeah. Well, you guys gave good direction and uh, we followed it. Well, so thank you. I worked out well. Greatly appreciate you doing that. Um, yeah. Okay. So David, the way that we like to start off the podcast, it's just like everything else, even though we've got quite a lot to cover on this one. Mm-hmm. is yeah you know what was young david like how did you get into this field were you always into cars like kind of tell us how you got started in this crazy field huh. well you know um i'm 61 so this started a long time ago but uh around 1977 you know i just uh really had a love for cool cars and things like that and didn't know much about them but was fascinated with the uh muscle car and different things like that and thought uh there were certainly some very ugly cars out there, but there were nice cars. I was always a huge fan of Corvettes and thought Are they were beautiful. The and... AMC Gremlin wasn't quite up to par with everything else out there. <laughs> my, my elementary school teacher drove a Gremlin, a green one, and uh, and that was fun to to watch them pull up every day in that car. But uh, anyway, no, I just really liked cars and thought I wanted to do something in my life with cars. So. You know, I got uh, involved in washing the family cars uh, as a routine and then the neighbor's cars and then starting to charge for washing cars and and detailing them and learning how to buff them and getting advice from friends and so forth. And and then uh, got a job as a porter at a local body shop, uh, a local body shop that became a, a big shop today. And uh, um, they treated me real good. And I cleaned the toilets and cleaned the floors and, you know, paid attention to what the tasks uh, were to be. And followed them and then really paid attention to the paint department. I was a huge fan of uh, the craft of, you know, painting cars and wanted to learn a lot about them. So, so that uh, fascinated me. So um, I got into prepping and learning how to sand a car and, and mask a car and, and doing all kinds of different things with that. So um, as time went on, I had an opportunity to uh, a neighbor, uh, actually who lived a couple blocks away, drove by the house and I was always polishing a car in the driveway or something. And he saw that I was doing that and asked me if I'd like to work for him as a painter's helper. And of course I jumped on that and then learned more about uh, prep and paint. And then uh, on the weekends I would rent uh, the local spray booths in town because back in the day you were able to rent a spray booth for uh, so many hours or a day and, and paint cars in it. So painted the neighborhood's cars and uh, it worked out well. And just kept doing that and then uh, got into um, estimating and then uh, went and uh, had an opportunity at a production shop. And a lot of people in the industry actually don't know the what a true production shop is, but they were 
body shop businesses that painted cars for, you know, around $100. And, uh, wow. you know, you'd do all little body work and wheel opening molding, side moldings and so forth and pinstripe them. And the average repair order was probably $270. And uh, what was underestimated in that business is that it was a very big business, very profitable business, but you had to move a lot of cars and you had to really learn production techniques. So that helped me a lot with where I'm at today for sure on how to um, have standardized processes and so forth. So it worked out pretty good. And then uh, um, got into management uh, or estimating more serious than management. And then I opened up my first body shop in uh, Adam in 1988. And uh, it was called the Paint Stop and it was a production shop. Did about 20, 25 cars a day. Had a team that picked up and delivered them. Uh, spent the night at the shop many times and uh, and one cool thing was um, it was very competitive back in back then. You know, Earl Scheib, Mako, Carcoa, different companies like that who offered these paint jobs. I was entering into an industry that uh, I wasn't 100% familiar with, but I just knew that I can get a car in and out pretty quick and that I can put a better paint job on it than the competition. So I found a differentiator, and where everyone was going out in shorts and jeans and T-shirts to solicit work, I threw on a suit and tie. And I hit the Harbor Boulevard of cars. Every city has one. And uh, went to those sled lots and uh, solicited myself that I could do a better job, that I would be faster, I'd be cheaper, and I'd be quicker and cleaner. And uh, they laughed a little bit until they saw the work, and they liked it. And then in time, I got more cars and more cars, and then I learned the trick of holding cars hostage so that they would uh, it would force them to... Uh, bring me another car in order to get their car back so that saved me on uh, travel time and uh, it worked out pretty good the uh, paints we used back then uh, were definitely not what we're using today we were using synthetic paints paint average from you know seven to fourteen dollars a gallon if you made a mistake you repainted the whole car so uh, kind of fun but uh, it worked out good and then in 1990 Adam I converted the shop to collision work I thought that was going to be some bigger tickets and and uh, more opportunities. So I opened a company called East Hills, East like in West, East Hills Auto Collision in Orange County, California, and uh, started getting into the collision business, and it worked out pretty good. And uh, a local competitor had moved in a few doors behind me and for year after year asked me to sell and I knew this was my dream to be in the collision repair industry, so I didn't sell, but I did after a few years say, well, you know, maybe one plus one is three, and maybe we can partner up. I could partner with you. Mm. Um, the gentleman's name was uh, Eric Bickett. He was the founder of Fix Auto USA, and uh, he wasn't real big on a partnership, but we talked and talked and sold myself to him, and he sold himself to me, and we opened up a uh, uh, we merged the shops and had a great uh, partnership for uh, around 19 years. In uh, 2016, sold some shops and uh, uh, locally here to some Fix Auto franchisees and uh, made a big investment in Fix Auto Anaheim North. Fix Auto Anaheim North mm -hmm. was to focus on, you know, severity-based segregation of work. You know, heavy collision here, light collision there not so much on the dollar amount it was all about the severity of the repair if it required framework or structural or heavy mechanical or so forth and uh kind of built the taj mahal of collision repairs here in anaheim california just down from disneyland so uh oh interesting with that said you know yeah 
learned a lot from the industry and and um, but Adam quite honestly I learned a lot from outside the industry you know looking at companies like California Pizza Kitchen and Wendy's and Starbucks and Best Buy and really looking at how they operate their industry and they have cycle time constraints as well and profitability um, you know concerns just like we all do curb appeal so forth employee you know structure production uh, customer care all that so I was fascinated with that industry, those industries, and implemented that into my own store. So we can talk about that when you want to. But, but uh, we, um, you know, when we opened the big store here, we planned on, you know, uh, using all the relationships that we had in the past with the insurance companies to help us launch the store. And unfortunately, on day one, pretty much all of them said, "Well, we already have, you know, uh, stores in the area and we're not really able to help you you're a good operator and you've done a good job in the industry but we're loyal to our partners and so forth in the area and so I had to get to thinking real quick and I thought well you know what maybe I better share my story of why I want to open this particular store and why it's different why it's better why it'll help the industry and possibly uh, tilt others to lean the same way so Adam after I shared the story of what the mission was of why the store was opened every one of those DRPs signed up. So we had uh, mm. probably about nine DRPs in about six months, and we grew the business from zero in 2018 to uh, 500000 a month within 42 months. We uh, wow. are in the midst of Mercedes-Benz certification right now, just passed the audit and just wrapping up a few things and dotting some I's and crossing some T's, and we'll be up and running with Mercedes-Benz. And uh, we've secured a really nice territory here in Orange County, and we're real excited about it. So... We're shooting uh, for around the 750 mark by the end of the first quarter, 2023. And we think by the end of 2023, we'll near the million mark. So not too bad for a five, six year venture. And uh, there's a lot of things that are attributed to that that were uh, taken from outside the industry for that success. So um, along that road, um, I got started in technology around 1999 because I was just, uh, I wanted to cure some pain that I had and I thought that implementing technology to cure that pain, Adam, would, uh, would help me a lot. So I studied, spent a lot of time with it, burned the midnight oil, got familiar with it, and uh, was fortunate enough to uh, have a few things work out well and invented the Update Promise uh, text messaging updating system that's now known as CCC Update Plus. CCC, great company, and uh, that's used in uh, probably over 12,000 locations today. So uh, pretty proud of that and uh, glad it was able to help people. And then uh, Collision Core Quality is another uh, invention that uh, Flashback Forward did. And um, that's for uh, uh, creating the opportunity for shops to have the ability to standardize uh, quality control practices in their shop. And uh, Sherwin-Williams, another fine company, um, is a real big uh, uh, promoter of quality control. Their products are wonderful, and they're and they're really uh, taking uh, taking the ground uh, running here in the uh, collision industry uh, with their um, great paint products. So, with that said, they really, really, really have a hard stance for quality, and uh, so mm-hmm. they are now the exclusive reseller of Collision Core quality, and uh, that's uh, worked out pretty good. So that's kind of yeah. an overview, and that's where we're at today. I would like to go back to 
<laughs> that's okay that's what a podcast is it's, it's mostly about you talking <laughs> that's what makes it so easy for me <laughs> there you go um <clears throat> i'd like to go back to <coughs> you working on this kind of like production type setting yeah and the reason why i'd like to go back to that is because it seems like early in your career you were in situations where efficiency and standard operating procedures and everything like that were vital to making it work where you know the sure you could work for shops that you know had a higher ticket per car but you mm -hmm. you know you were just doing volume what are just real quick what are some of the things that you found out early on were some of the biggest time savers uh when it came to production shop you know, you know stuff like that yeah i mean we're talking the production era yep. yeah um time management you know, you're dealing with a small dollar amount. You need to make the best of it. You need to be correct the first time. And uh, you need processes and you need flow. And uh, those were the, the pieces that uh, had the best success, for sure. Gotcha. And going forward to, jumping quite a bit forward to, you know, you owning mm -hmm. your own shop. What yeah. what was diving into that like? <laughs> were, you, were you pretty nervous, or was it just kind of you, you weren't worried too much about it? And you're talking about starting the starting with my own shop in 1988, yep. opening the doors for the first yep. time. Yeah, it was wonderful. You know, my dad uh, was a great man, and uh, he um, he had lend me the money to open my first store. He always believed in me, and uh, felt that uh, you know I'd knock it out of the park, and and uh, he was a big supporter. And uh, he lent me the money to open the first shop and wanted to make sure it was right and didn't have any limits and took every penny he had to, to lend to me to do that. And, and uh, it's the greatness of fathers and helping out their kids. So he wasn't involved in the business too much, but he was a uh, um, uh, big in, in steel business. You know, United States Steel, American mm -hmm. Bridge uh, was in charge of a uh, uh, crew of thousands, you know, to uh, build these bridges and Sears Tower and so forth. So he was very production oriented and he'd share a lot of stories with me. And, and, uh, at the time I didn't know they'd be relative to my business today, but they really were, uh, relative, but, um, I opened the store, had it all beautiful and nice and I'm all happy and I have no cars <laughs> and I just have debt. And so, uh, I started just calling friends and telling them, Hey, the shop's open. Let me paint your car and give them discounts and do whatever I needed to do to uh, keep it going. And then I, uh, you know, just mixed with the local chambers and did all the politicking and, and so forth and uh, dressed up, wore a suit and tie to work every day and just uh, wanted that differentiator to be cleanliness, curb appeal, appearance, kindness, you know, just uh, try to change the game up a little bit. And then in time, I uh, got to know some insurance companies and local adjusters and next thing you know, um, it took off. So uh, yeah, we just uh, had to stick to purpose and always be reminded of what the intent was of my journey in this business and it was to be different and uh that really uh worked out for me uh, being the black sheep sometimes is tough but uh it is what it is and it's what i wanted to do and i'm very glad i stuck mm -hmm. to it have you it's not always a profitable journey but uh but in time it uh it definitely turned the tides and uh, worked out well for us have you ever read the book by chance purple cow by no i did um, not that I, I just that's kind of what that reminded me of 
Um, if, no, is that the sequel to Black? <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, you gotta you gotta go up in size an animal and yeah. obviously change the colors because you know if it was a black cow, you'd just be like yeah. everyone else. <laughs> uh, sure. Yeah. Well, I figure you know if you're gonna be at work anyway, you know why not be different yep. and use that time wisely. So yeah. totally agree. Um, so fast forward a couple more years, you have a guy that is yeah. interested in buying you out, merging and everything like that. Mm-hmm. What was, yeah. What was having a partner like all of a sudden, like wh- how, d- how did you navigate differences of opinions and stuff like that? Well, you know, I think one of the, the, the first things that someone would think you have to overcome is not having your name in spotlight. And uh, I was humbled enough to know that it wasn't all about my name, it was about what the, the, the power of two people could do together to, to uh, grow a business and, and uh, without losing my values and so forth. So Eric Bickett was, uh, was a real good partner, and he brought a lot to the table. I mean, a lot. We both brought good things to the table. Um, I had a lot of the production side that I brought to it, the, the, uh, the vision for the operations and so forth. And Eric wanted to focus very much on having a successful launch to uh, fix auto. And uh, it was new to the country, and uh, that was fresh down from Canada. And uh, he wanted to put the shops together, and uh, he wanted to create that network. And so I was real happy to be able to support that and uh, become a fish, fix shop and change my name from East Hills to, to Fix Auto. And then uh, um, Eric brought a lot of uh, accounting experience, financial experience, um, quite a bit of thinking outside the box uh, to the table. And uh, he was very inviting to whatever I had. He was very supportive. And uh, when I am in a partnership, it's absolutely a marriage. There's no question about it. There's no turning back. We were very uh, much 50-50 partners. We didn't leave the room uh, without a solution when we had a challenge. Uh, challenges were very few. And uh, it worked out great. So I would say that uh, that was quite an asset uh, uh period in my life and uh, it's taught me a lot to where I'm at today so um, very comfortable with the partnership did you guys early on divide up what you were going to concentrate on and what he was going to concentrate on and then you both are pretty good about um, letting the other person just have full control well not full control but you know what I mean like letting you do most of what you guys were assigned to is that kind of what you guys found to work best for you or how did that dynamic kind of work for you guys yeah when we had a handshake you know that uh hey he's going to focus on uh launching fix auto and uh having some nice stores under his belt to launch that uh was important to him important to me so i took over operations and um he um was always there for uh financial purposes should we need it he had input into the business that he wanted to put in and uh and we utilized those and um but he was a, a large focus on the uh, Fix Auto franchise, and I was more of a focus on the operation itself, um, Caulfield-Bickett uh, merger uh, of the two, sh- two locations mm. there, merged together. Interesting. And uh, it worked out pretty good. So we had, um, you know, signed and never looked back. It was definitely um, a body shop partnership uh, uh, that was solid. Awesome. And we respected each other, and we did our thing. There'd be weeks you wouldn't see them or days you wouldn't see them or so forth. We didn't intermix too much outside of the uh, operation. Kept it real professional, and uh, it was good. 
So I encourage anybody not to be shy of a partnership, but learn who you're partnering with. That's for sure. <laughs> they are risky. They are risky, but uh, we were both both blessed with a good one. Yeah. So uh, fast forwarding to this first piece of technology that you come around with, uh, would you say it was? It was Update Plus. Was that was that what it's called? Um, it was it was a company called UpdatePromise.com. Update yeah, and uh, it was a um, it was a uh, text messaging system that uh, updated the consumer from the time they brought their car in to the time they they left with calm and passive and simple messages that weren't auto body related, but uh, more on the psyche that uh, they're being kept in the loop and that everything's fine and just uh, we got your back. So that worked out well. How that became to be invented was that I would hear estimators uh, on a daily basis updating consumers because there was a big push back in the early, you know, 90s and 2000s to make sure, you know, the customers are being updated properly and so forth. So I saw, Adam, that most people, when they updated a consumer, they would say that, hey, everything's fine and we're on track for Friday, but our technician uh, broke the belt molding and we're running over to BMW to pick it up and and uh, as soon as we get that back uh, and put on the car, we'll wash it and we'll call you. So I always kind of imagine that a husband and wife were walking down the aisles of a grocery store and, and the wife took that call. And when she hung up, the husband asked, what was that about? And she'd say, I believe, well, that was the body shop. And they said something about a broken molding. And I thought, well, that was unnecessary because they missed the intent. The intent was is that your car is fine and it's coming home on Friday. So I felt that communication could be standardized and that we could say the things that were important to the consumer and be honest about them. If we say the car is coming home on Friday, it's coming home on Friday, and why don't we just shut up and leave it at that and leave those nuts and bolts of the operation to the operation and have the customer in a more calm environment and uh, looking forward to picking their car up on Friday. So that worked out and still used today and I use it today. Yeah. What's really interesting about that is, um, as you kind of noticed early on, people would focus on the negative versus, you know, mm -hmm. the, the overall message. Right. Um, absolutely. Yeah. I, I can, and you were doing this in like mid to late nineties. Yes. We were giving text, uh, or we were giving pagers to customers with a laminated, code on it that said one two three four and if it was one your car's in body if it's two your car's in paint so we were we had about 60 pagers on the property and we gave them to customers and we gave them the little cheat sheet and when they got a text that said one two three four or five it updated them on their car thought i'd take that a little bit further and then uh text messaging came to be and and uh when i first solicited that product door to door to shops i kind of got laughed at a lot and they said well texting's not a big deal and that's a fad and and my you know my grandfather won't use it and my dad won't use it and it's for kids and I said I don't know you know I mean here we are in the early 2000s and uh, you know there's already billions of text messages being sent a day and it's coming and it will be the most intimate method of communication in the future and they had said how how do you think that and I said, well, you do text. And they said, yeah. And I says, well, not to get personal, but I'm certain you text in the restroom before. And if you did, it's proving it's the most ultimate, intimate 
method of communication that you can have because you're comfortable to do it anywhere, receive them anywhere, and uh, they'll always be with you. So, so you're updated wherever you are, and uh, and uh, that worked out. What's really interesting about that is that text messaging as a communication from company to end user you know, in marketing or whatever, hasn't really come around until the last like three, four years um, in mm-hmm. mass anyways. I'm just, you know, obviously there was companies out there doing it. Um, so it's really interesting that you had that foresight basically a decade earlier than mm-hmm. what was, you know, something, something that's um, very common now. And yeah, yeah, I mean, it's great to get a phone call um, and in some ways, I would say, you know, y- you could actually make the argument that a phone call is more, per- more personable. Um, but mm-hmm. if it's something just like I wouldn't want I, I personally would want to get a phone call when the whole thing is, hey, your car's in the paint booth now. OK, mm-hmm. thanks. I mean, I appreciate the update, but like when I get a phone sure. call, like it's either got to be something serious or a little bit more in depth um, conversation. Right? Sure. Um, yeah. Even an email, you know, I guess would probably be. I actually, th- maybe that's something I would like to ask you about. Email as a service like that was way mm-hmm. before text messaging. So, what mm-hmm. was it that made you decide to go texting versus emailing? Because emailing at that point, you know, there's billions, if not trillions, of emails being sent every every year. Mm-hmm. I had felt that the text messaging messaging was more accessible and more viewed more frequently um, with the iPhone coming out and so forth, 05, 06. So uh, um, I just thought that was the path. Email was getting a little convoluted and people weren't uh, fully engaged in, in emails yet. Um, they were a little trickier at the time to, to use and communicate with. And But uh, text messaging, I just felt, was going was, was gonna to be it, and I stuck to that. You know, to your point, you know, there is no better method of communication than a warm and fuzzy phone call. Totally get that. But um, there's also, uh, you know, there's the power in communicating that there'll be no communication. And and people respect that. So uh, the intent of the product was to not tell people they were going to be updated. Let them know that you'll call them when it's done or if you need them. And then they would get these interim text messages as an extra added value. And then that recorded well on CSI surveys, and it boosted scores across the shops, and uh, it lessened the phone from ringing in a body shop. Yeah. So it worked out pretty good. But uh, texting was the focus, uh, period. Hey guys, Adam from the podcast. I hope you are enjoying today's episode. Just wanted to ask you a quick favor. If the show has brought you value in some way, would you mind giving us a review and sharing the show? It really helps the show get out there. Also, if you are looking to expand the services that your shop offers and you want to do more than collision work, you should really check out our company, Clarity Coat. Clarity Coat is a peelable paint that allows body shops to offer color changes cheaper than a repaint while still looking like real paint. You can also offer clear protection that has no edges and is sprayed instead of laid. Unlike vinyl and PPF, Clarity Coat can be sanded and polished, so you can give your customer the exact look that they are wanting. If you are looking to expand your shop services, go to claritycoat.com and fill out our Become an Installer form. All right, let's get back to the show. Are you doing this all manually? Like, um, you know. It's automated. Yeah, so Update Promise is a product that uh, it was real important that um, in inventing a product and 
working with the people that I work with, I was very adamant about, you know, the, what's the ultimate scenario in creating a software? And that would be that no one had to use it. Maybe no one had to pay for it. And, and it was automated. And uh, it just worked for them behind the scenes. So when a vehicle comes into a repair shop, uh, for example, in CCC, um, uh, it'll trigger a text message to the consumer, you know, thanking them for dropping off the car and that we'll be in touch with them shortly. And then as certain events happen to the body shop, uh, uh, not certain events, but from based on the time that the car comes in to the time that the car was predicted to leave, the system determined what messages to send people. Mm -hmm. So if you had a two-week repair, you might get more messages with different comments in them versus a shorter repair might be less messages with with comments in them that would say, hey, you know, hi, Mary, your car is happy here. Why? Because it's coming on, home on Tuesday at 5 o'clock. You know, simple like that. They got a kick out of it. Got beat up a lot for the silliness of the messages, but they were conversation starters at the dinner table, and that's what I wanted to have happen. I wanted it, it to be an outlier. I wanted it to be different. I didn't want it to be generic, and uh, but just get people to talk about it. And then even to this day on online reviews and so forth, uh, most people mentioned they were updated throughout the repair via text, and they were happy to mm -hmm. see that. So that was good. I did get out of Update Promise back in 2015 or 16, and uh, uh, the company's run by uh, Kurt Nixon, great gentleman who uh, did real well with the company, brought it into the dealership world, and has been very successful, him and his wife, Patty, and a great team that he has uh, um, surrounding him. So he's done a really good job. How did that whole conversation with um, CCC come around of them acquiring that technology? Well, you know, like Mitchell, uh, a great company. I'm a huge fan of Mitchell International and uh, and uh, had a great relationship with um, CCC, a gentleman named Mark Fincher. And I believe that when they were launching the CCC One platform, they uh, wanted to get some traction. They were doing a great job. It was a great management system, uh, along with some other great ones that were out there. And um, they had uh, um, saw the value in text messaging coming in the future. And uh, Mark was uh, extremely smart and jumped on that and worked with us uh, very well to start to possibly integrate the system into CCC. And so um, I do believe it was one of the first systems and maybe the last that was merged into the CCC product. I could be wrong on that, but I, I do believe that was a, uh, the case. But, but Mark uh, Fincher was steadfast on, um, on getting that enhanced technology into their suite of solutions and uh that worked out well for them yeah i was very proud to have worked with such a such a yeah company. i mean that, that's a nice nice little thing to hang your hat on that you got to work with uh ccc like <laughs> yeah yeah nothing to, nothing to really brush off mm -hmm. there <laughs> yeah absolutely and you know and mitchell um also uses the product and it's integrated into their system as well and and uh um super fan of uh, Mitchell products. You know, we use a lot of Mitchell products today in our, our facility. We do use CCC uh, One as our management system. We do use Mitchell Connect, uh, which is a fabulous product that they've come out with. And uh, stay very close to, uh, to both companies today. So let's fast forward really quick to um, QCIQ. Uh, how did yeah. that come around? What was the thought process for that? Because obviously, I mean, I can definitely see where... Um, update plus or you know whatever it's uh sorry whatever it's known as now um i keep forgetting the name of it sure but um 
CCC uh, update yeah, plus. CCC update plus. I'm, I keep getting the previous mm-hmm. name and the <laughs> the now name uh, mixed up. Yeah, um, sure. I can definitely see the path for that. You know, the clear thinking on that. But what was what was the thinking behind QCIQ and um, what led you to do that? And how long did it take you to implement? You know, back in probably um, 2018, I had a repair in a shop that I sold. And I had that shop for 27 years. That was the one that we merged together with, uh, with a partner there. And that was in Yorba Linda, California. I did a rear body panel repair on a, uh, on a vehicle. And we were doing about 400000 a month at the time. And it was a, a Lexus rear body panel repair for about $2,300. And uh, State Farm was insurance company. We had a great relationship with State Farm. We were a good DRP for them. And uh, we had been a DRP with them since probably 1991. And uh, what happened was was that uh, they had uh, real good guidelines for the program. They uh, were a very fair company. And uh, however, if a, if a client did not like the repair or had an issue with the repair, they had the choice to go wherever they wanted. They did not have to come back to you. That particular rear body panel uh, for $2,300 was just a repair. And, um, and I undermined it. I, I missed, uh, a little bit of an imperfection on the inside of the rear body panel. I could have fixed it in five minutes before it got painted. We missed it. We didn't do it. And, uh, the car got through the, through the cracks in the company and, and, uh, the consumer, um, questioned it when he looked at it and took it to a friend in another city who was not a DRP, was not a state farm shop. And uh, they somehow came up with a bill for $6,300 to make it correct. I got to go down there to look at the car, and it was obviously repairable and minor, but they wanted to change the rear body panel because that's what the customer wanted and for whatever reasons. And next thing you know, you're blending quarter panels, you're pulling sunroof, you're doing all these things and changing the moldings and and what have you. So State Farm sent me a bill, and they said, uh, you need to pay the bill. And I said, okay. I mean, I was getting $100,000 a month from that account. And uh, I felt embarrassed about it. I didn't want it to happen again. So I got to the drawing board and started mapping out on some napkins. uh, How can I catch things like this in the future? What kind of a check and balance, you know, do I need to create that can help myself and help the industry? So since there's a lack of standardization in a QC process in a body shop, I felt that this was the next update promise and that, that there was a need uh, to to standardize a quality process. And so basically the app in general has uh, three modules to it, a customer care module, which is what we recommend you start out with. It's after the car is fixed. It's for the appearance items on the vehicle, from clean carpets to fingerprints on a window to smeared glass to tires dressed and so forth. And the paint looks clean and the car is washed and, and so forth. And that gives a shop an opportunity to verify that uh, that product has has a great first impression set up on it for when the consumer looks at it. Nothing to do with the nuts and bolts of the car, but it's an elementary level to start a QC process. And it also dresses the items that the consumer grades you on. You know, they're not educated on the nuts and bolts of the car. That's for the body shop to do. Um, the next module is, is uh, highly recommended as a post-audit repair, you know, QC. When the vehicle's done, the estimate lines populate into the app, gives you, gives you or a user the ability to say, I like that line or I don't like that line. It gives a shop the final ability to verify 
Adam, the existence and the quality of the products and services they sold to somebody. So if you have 100 estimate lines or 20 estimate lines in your repair order, they bridge automatically into the app. Supplements are updated in real time. It gives an end user a chance to look at each line, see what they charge, look at the car and say, I like it or I don't like it. Should they not like it, Adam, it's a great learning experience. The system prompts them to take a photo of the area that they don't like, put their finger on the epicenter of the area they don't like, and then the system automatically text messages the technician privately and personally to his own phone saying this is an area that you know could use some uh, some attention this is the reason that we can't pass it and then once that technician resolves that issue the item is passed the technician gets a sign off with a photo of it resolved what he did to resolve it and then that tracked the downtime of uh, of a rework and uh, it works out pretty good so shops are jumping on board there's a movement today to get this uh, across the industry here uh, the third module is an in-process app. That's for the, the, uh, the shops that uh, want to look at every nut and bolt and uh, gives them an opportunity to check off the R of R&I, you know, the remove. It's done. I did it. And then when it's reinstalled, they check that off. That is probably uh, months to years away of, of people actually diving into a module like that. That is the correct way to check a car. But with today's time constraints, the KPIs that we face, all the pressure, um, it's important that we just look at the car before it leaves. We must look at it. In interviewing shop owners across the country, to my surprise, uh, not shocked, but to my surprise, a majority, and when I say majority, eight out of 10 shop owners and shop managers admit they do not have the time to look at the car, to verify the existence, of the products and services that they sold for quality and that they actually do exist. And uh, they have regret in that. They're not totally comfortable with that, but it's going on, it's going on. And for their sake and for the sake of the insurer and the consumer, most you know, importantly, vehicles need to be looked at. It just takes a few minutes. Some people will say, hey, that took me 22 minutes to QC that car. The longer it takes you to QC a car, the more money you got paid. That's it. So 22 minute investment into something that was $15,000, great. Three to seven minutes for your average repair, well worth it. You know, you've shopped at Costco, Adam. You know, when you go to Costco, maybe you have, maybe you haven't, but in the Costco process, you'll buy something, you'll walk through the, or go to exit the door, they'll stop you. They'll look at the receipt. They'll make sure it was paid for. They'll make sure you got what you paid for. They'll look at the quality of the product that you're taking out of there so the box isn't damaged or, or what have you, and they control that. So what's going out of that store is paid for, it existed, and it was in good shape. And Costco's doing that for a bag of nuts. Why aren't we doing that for a $5,000 collision repair? Why aren't we taking that extra few minutes to take a look at that car? And if you look at the connotation on reviews, most often... You know, um, the biggest correlation to a, to a body shop uh, um, referring another customer to that body shop is uh, quality. It has the highest correlation to would you recommend a body shop. When quality is missed, it tanks. So that was the uh, intent behind that. Yeah, <clears throat> I can't really imagine a body shop referring or another business referring a body shop if they're like, yeah, you know, they cut a lot of corners, but 
They're they're all right. You you know that mm-hmm. that conversation never yeah. happens. David, sure. what would you? S- but consumer to consumer, it definitely happens. <laughs> yeah. David, yeah. what would you say to the guys or the people that say, you know, that sounds just like a lot of busy work. Like, great, you mm-hmm. know, um, you yeah. know, we're in this app and we're like. We're we're taking pictures and we're putting our finger on it and like and then it's texting yeah. this guy. It just seems like a lot of busy work. Why can't I just, I don't know, write it down on a piece of paper and hand it to the guy and just call it good? Sure. Yeah. Well, you know, um, anybody can pencil whip anything, right? In 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 the traditional days of of having a little QC checklist that goes on the dashboard and then the car is ready to leave, but it needs to be signed, so they scribble through it. And I'm not saying that's all people by any means. There's a lot of great shops out there. A lot of people pay attention to detail. But there are a lot that don't. And um, the app doesn't take much time at all. Like I say, it's just minutes. Everything's automated, so no one's text messaging anybody. It's automated. You know, all as you do in the app is you open it up, you select the car you want to QC, you're standing at that car, you answer a few questions, and if you don't like something, be honest about it. Give your subjective opinion. You're not a professional auditor. You're not a QC guru yet. You know, it's just your subjective opinion is if you feel it meets the quality standards of your company. It's an honest answer. Does the part exist on the car? And I can tell you that through April of, and these are statistics I remember, of through April of 2022 here at this shop, we QC'd over 3,013 vehicles. We rejected 478 operation wow. lines. And I can tell you, I thought I was good. I thought I had it right. I, we have a good team, but we're human and we make errors. I was shocked at how much was getting out the door with a missing clip or a fender liner, you know, not attached or a, or a door gap, you know, variation or a light bulb that didn't work or a warning light that was on. These are all things that only take minutes to resolve. If you have a problem with a welded frame or a frame not pulled, you have bigger problems in your shop. Those are operational things you need to pay attention to. But the app was designed to give you a reminder of what you told someone you were char- or what you were charging someone for, and does that product meet the quality standard that you want to have out on the street? Just a matter of minutes. Really simple. Also, you know, Adam, I want to add, people think quality control is complicated. They think it's expensive. They think it should be very deep into all the specs of this and that it's not verifax is a great company i believe oe connect has verifax now uh far as i'm great guy who 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 invented that product and um that required a lot of feet on the street it required looking at maybe or a shop got the benefit of maybe one out of a hundred cars looking at the auditors were were very talented very knowledgeable And they looked at that one car, and when they left, yes, a technician learned something, but at the same time, they wiped their forehead, the sweat off, and went, geez, got through that. But then there was was 99 cars left that weren't looked at. So um, Verifax is the college level of quality control. And we can all get there in time, but I openly admit it's not going to happen today. So having a QC app and getting used to the technology in the palm of your hand to use it to look at a vehicle before it leaves is the start of becoming a Verifax down the road to where it becomes second nature to look at a car correctly. So again, today, subjective opinion of what they feel the car should look like is a start. That's it. If they missed it, Mrs. Smith will let them know. 
and uh, that's how that'll work. You know, um, you kind of touched on it he, at the very last part of that, but mm. it's actually really surprising to me how most just service-based businesses in general, mm-hmm. how much they discount what people are willing to put up with when it comes to poor mm-hmm. quality control. Sure. Mm-hmm. And I think what happens a lot of times is, especially in the Midwest, because we have this thing in the Midwest called, called Midwest Nice, where you know sure. we don't like to we don't like to um uh offend, offend anyone or you know <laughs> oh you know it's fine yeah. you know we'll we'll get over yeah. it type of thing right but i think what happens is a lot of times in service based businesses they almost kind of bank on that like ah oh, you know these people aren't going to say anything because you know they'd be they'd be jerks if they did type of thing sure and something i've always told other people is you really only get two chances and that's being generous Mm -hmm. at Mm -hmm. um fixing a problem for a customer if there's more than two problems you you might as well write off that customer as being a happy customer period because Mm -hmm. um i don't know it just seems like that's just the tolerance for most people like you know hey one thing goes wrong it's it's highly inconvenient they goes from and this is obviously just a this is not a scientific scale people so don't yell at me but let's say the customer is 100 percent satisfied they find one thing wrong it just immediately drops down to like a 75 percent satisfaction level because mm. they're you were they were promised the vehicle on this day and now all of a sudden it's going to be at least another day or they drove mm. home and all of a sudden the check engine light came, came on and now they're like sure. oh great now i've got to take time out of my day to go back to the shop mm-hmm. where you might be sitting there and you might be thinking to yourself like it's just a check engine light like it's not a big deal it is a big deal because mm-hmm. you completely inconvenience that person. And sure. the way that they look at it is you're the expert. This should just never happen. Mm-hmm. Now, is that a really lofty goal and maybe a little bit um, you know, unrealistic? Yeah, but that's just the reality of the world that we live in. What, what's your thoughts on that? Well, I don't know, Adam. You know, you woke up this morning and I can promise you, you looked in the mirror. You look. I mean, man. yeah, I, I look and really why good. Why did you do so, that? Of course, <laughs> you look good. So, 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 why did you look in the mirror? You, you, you didn't want to go out with an imperfection. You didn't want to, you know, to 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 be yourself with a flaw. You know, you didn't want to show your product had an in, inferior piece to it. You know, and this sounds a little silly, but it's a fact. You know, and so you were you were concerned about that. We, you know, most people are. Um, you know, paying attention to the car and it's, is, you know, there's a couple things there's, you know, you're either moving widgets and you don't care and you're going to play the odds game or you take pride in your work and you, you want to have two feet in with the insurance companies and they gave you the work and gave you the money and the insured in, in their claimant gave you the car. I think we owe them a, a fine product and getting to a fine product is really just a few moments away of an extra tent and of a little extra attention to detail and uh and you got a nice solid product on the street you know so um when you know what you were talking about reminds me of a statement that jack rosent made at mitchell international and it's always kind of stuck with me you know when a customer has a quality issue you know they have a sense of feeling damaged the second time and i was always compelled by that you know chip foos uh as a um is a uh, partner in the software company and uh chip is you know his dna is just you know quality 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 and uh, he has some very high standards and he shared with me 
uh, in our talks that, uh, you know, people can get over price and they can get over time, but they just can't get past quality. And uh, so, you know, I've always taken that to heart and felt that those kind of comments from Jack and from Chip and others were uh, really supporting the cause, you know. And um, I do believe that within five years, the industry will have a standardized practice uh, for um, quality control, period. No matter what level it'll be at, there'll be one. There'll be one. And uh, as confident as I was about the text messaging coming, I'm confident on this. Um, it's got to happen. So where does Sherwin-Williams come into the picture on this? Sherwin-Williams has a uh, suite of applications um, called Collision Core. And they launched this uh, about a year ago. They're just now uh, launching some of the applications that were in it. They've spent years developing um, uh, um, and working with outside technology companies and inside themselves with their own teams, uh, building, tech, building technologies that can help shops. So you don't need to be a Sherwin-Williams user to use these products. Uh, the quality control app is available to everybody. But Sherwin-Williams, like I said earlier, is, um, really believes in the importance of... Uh, you know, looking at your work and uh, putting out a quality product. You know, companies like Sherwin and others, you know, have fine paint products, but it, it doesn't do them any justice if they're not looking as beautiful as they should be when they hit the street. And um, so they've made a large investment into the Collision Core uh, suite of applications to be able to help shops, uh, like I say, be, be them users of Sherwin today or not. Um, they want to help the industry. A gentleman by the name of Rob Mosin and and Lee Rush and Ted Williams uh, take the lead on these things and uh, travel the country and the world about um, not only promoting and standing up for quality, but actually putting uh, putting their uh, th their um, uh, having skin in the game about participating and making sure that applications are available to help assist body shops have the success by spending a few minutes on each car and. Uh, you know, having some check and balance. Just out of curiosity, do you happen to have any data or statistical um, data that backs why or the improvements that a shop has made in having in implementing some sort of quality control? And I mean, specifically your your guys's um, software, or not specifically your guys's software. Do you have anything sure. data points on that? Yeah, you know, like I mentioned earlier, and and is that the, the number one correlation to a high CSI is would a consumer recommend that body shop the number one correlation to recommend a body shop is quality so absolutely shops that have improved quality through the application or not through the application who have high quality repairs have a much higher CSI a much more solid and friendly connotation on social media as far as to surveys, you know, reviews and so forth. So there's an absolute correlation to quality and high customer uh, uh, surveys, uh, survey responses. Let's let's talk really quick about positive survey responses. <laughs> yeah, Sorry. yeah. I mean, yeah. we hopefully aren't talking about negative ones. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, let's talk really quick about flashback forward. What's what? What sure. is this? What do you got? What do you got going on here? So flashback forward is the is the uh, creator of the Collision Core app. So it was called QCIQ when it launched. Um, Sherwin had an interest in uh, pursuing that product. 
and getting it into their suite of apps. And so that um, it was formerly known as QCIQ, so it's Collision Core. So Flashback Forward is the technology company powering Collision Core quality. Got it. Um, mm-hmm. Do you guys have any plans on um, rolling out anything else? <laughs> yeah, we do. <laughs> anything you can talk about? Yeah, we do. You know, there's – yeah, sure. You know, I'm um, – scheduling in it you know uh is is weak in our industry um and in order to figure out how to schedule something of course you need to know who the players are you know obviously you know your work in process and so forth so measuring the productive and non-productive time of people can give you truer efficiencies for a shop and uh and once you understand what each player contributes to the repair you can better predict how long a repair will take when a repair should come in and uh, when that repair will go out so i would say that technology in that area will probably be coming up over the next couple years interesting there's a lot of moving Mm -hmm. parts to that too um how are you how are you tackling something like that i mean and i'm not trying to like you know i've tackled it already uh back in 1999 and it's all built so so um, it just needs to be redesigned for today's platforms and so forth. But the algorithms are there and so forth. You know, there's a lot of shops that, uh, uh, for good reason, may promote their technician that's three or 400% efficient. And, uh, and that's wonderful. And, and most techs are. They, how you end up with 100 or 125% efficiency, which is really hard to stay in business at those efficiencies, is that somebody works, you know, 60% of the day at 250%, 300% efficiency, and then doesn't perform the rest of the day. You know, there's a lot of idle time in between. When we did studies with uh, thousands of repair orders and, and hundreds of technicians, our, our data came back that a technician didn't work more than an average of 62% of the day. Wow. Interruptions, part interruptions, restroom, doctor appointment, whatever the case may be, but out of that eight hours, it was interesting. You know, I mentioned my father earlier, Bob Caulfield. Um, one of the things that he taught me was super important. He said that David, when, when I was on a project on, uh, I don't know if it was the Sears Tower or one of the big bridges or Alaskan Pipeline, but he had several thousand employees work for him. And there were obviously union leaders and or, or, or leaders in the company that uh, um, were in, in in charge of the crews below him and he had always asked them what could we do to be better how can we make your life better this and that and the production people felt the welders and so forth and so forth and hole punchers and crane operators said you know we're just not getting our breaks are interrupted you know we just want our 15 minute break and my dad said well let, let me see what i can do why that's happening what we could do to overcome that so he came back to them to the leader of those couple thousand people and said uh well, you know what? The 15-minute break should never be interrupted. Your lunch should never be interrupted. Um, I'm going to make a deal. I'm going to give you 15 minutes uninterrupted every hour. And they said, why every hour? He said, no, I want you to have a break every hour for 15 minutes. All as I ask in exchange is 45 minutes of nonstop work. Productivity went up several thousand percent. Mm. It was the steadfast non-interruption of 45 minutes accompanied by a bell that would go off and, you know, to start the 15-minute break 
they could work through it if they wanted. They, you know, but they were authorized to have that downtime for whatever they needed to do. But give me 45 minutes an hour, and that worked out really well. So you can imagine if you're doing $300,000 a month and your technicians are working an average of 62% of the day, what's what's 10% of of $200,000 and what's 10% of you know of uh, 60 minutes, you know? Or, or what have you, or 62%, you know, get, get it back up to 68% or what have you. And that's a significant difference in uh, productivity. So those little things. You know, um, I forget what it's called right now, but there is this thought process. Um, th- this mostly applies to, I don't know, office workers, people who work at a desk all day. But there's this, um, there's this method where you set a timer, you work for, you know, uninterrupted for the duration of that timer. And then you get up every, um, for five minutes, go and do something. And then you come back and you go mm. get intensive. And I was, I, I mean, I've never really practiced it. Um, and I forget what the, mm. what it's called, but it, it, what you're saying actually makes a lot of sense because, you know, as a service worker, just someone in the service industry, you're not going to keep at the same intensity level for seven hours six and a half hours you know whatever Mm -hmm. i mean you'd have to be on cocaine or heroin to do that you know just Mm -hmm. (laughs) just the way that it is um and so uh i can see where that would be really valuable valuable where you're like you know you have your 15 minute break and then when it's done you're not like great now i have two and a half hours or three hours of continuous Mm -hmm. work until i get my next you know, 15 minute break, which just seems so small in comparison. Right. And maybe yeah. that's the millennial soft in me or whatever. But I, th- I just think that I, I always used to tell people when it comes to business owners, anyways, when it comes to employees, you can really only expect about 75 or 70 to 75% of, mm-hmm. of your bill or of their ability to match up to your ability. And this is like, again, if mm-hmm. you're, an auto mechanic or or if you're an auto mechanic turned owner or if you're a body guy turned owner you can't expect your employees to do a hundred percent because why would they they have no mm. skin yeah. in the game to to do it right yeah i mean you can make the argument of like oh well if they don't if they don't work hard then they don't have a job okay well you know we haven't i don't know if you've heard but we have an employee shortage so good luck good mm. luck with that one yeah <laughs> um yeah well i get what you're saying i think i'd like to add something yeah. just to, to touch on that, you know, um, n- nobody wants to drive it. You know, this isn't about driving an employee to work hard or what have you. You know, it, it, the most successful leaders today, Adam, build an environment that helps the tech stay busy, helps them make money. You know, um, a leader's goal in a body shop should be to have a bunch of rich employees and 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 individually you're not going to be able to conquer each employee with his own personality his own character his own history to get him to work a certain way so emphasis really needs to be on the environment dictating it so if you have processes that are simple and fine-tuned and a car moves from here to here to here you know and, and parts are in order for the most part and the estimates articulated correctly and written right the first time and and a lot of good practices in place the technician will stay busy throughout the day 
So the comments that I made earlier about a technician only performing 62% of the day, I'm not saying, and I don't want to have it implied, that I think that they only want to work 62% of the day. I think that by design of that facility, it only allows an employee to work 62% of the time mm -hmm. because of its inefficiencies in its system, in its processes. So the more that you can build an environment that dictates the next steps, that holds people accountable to finish this before they do this, and have orderliness and uh, time management uh, top of mind in a facility, technicians will absolutely follow that path and do that. You know, we had a meeting one time, and, and we talked about uh, making sure our environments helped people progress. And someone said, well, how do you what do you mean by an environment dictating something? And I said, well, you know, um, we have a little meeting here and there's about 20 people in the room. What I'm going to do is I see that everybody brought a jacket because it's November and uh, they have their jackets off because the room is at like 70, you know, five degrees or whatever. I said, I'm going to put the thermostat to 68. And without me asking anybody, everyone will put their jacket on. And everyone did. And I says, now I'm going to have them take it off. You know, I'm telling the guy on the side, I'm going to now take off the jacket. And I put the temperature to 78. And they all removed it. No one was asked to do it. They just did what the environment dictated for them to do. That's a, that's a funky little analogy. That's a funky little exercise. But it showed that it could be done. So it's not used to dehumanize anybody or anything like that. And that's not where we're headed. And you're not heading in that direction either. It's we need the technicians to be comfortable. We, everybody needs direction. Look, I've been in this collision repair industry 45 years. You're a seasoned man yourself at what you do. We need direction. We do from whoever. Michael Jordan has a coach, you know, had a coach. Everybody at the best of their game or whatever needs direction from somewhere, something. And um, so uh, technicians enjoy clarity, direction, and process. Mm -hmm. And they'll be much more efficient that way. And so our goal is to keep technicians making a lot of money one, and not looking over the fence, that's for sure. One last story on that that I think mm -hmm. is just really interesting, yeah. and especially the timing of this conversation, is I'm reading the biography of Steve Jobs. <clears throat> really thick book, um, but just chock full of just some amazing insights, both good and bad, on the guy. Sure. And mm -hmm. one thing that he was really fanatical about, of, among lots of different things, was environment. And this mm -hmm. is at a time where environment, it, workplace environment, was just, it was literally scoffed at. Like, it just it was like, whatever. Mm -hmm. Well, back in early 2000s, Sony and Apple were just competitors, right? They were, they were fierce competitors. And around the time that iTunes came out, um, shortly after jobs was asked, well, you know, how, how did you make this work? And Sony didn't. And I'm obviously very much so paraphrasing here uh, because there's a lot of nuance mm -hmm. to this, but he said the main problem with Sony is that they're siloed. And what happens with big companies is that they get siloed. You're, their album company, Sony Albums or whatever, is in a whole different building, might even be in a whole different country than mm -hmm. the Sony software company. And the Sony software company mm -hmm. is in a whole different building or, or a whole different country than the the 
um, people that represent the artists. So they can't talk. They just, they can't. Mm -hmm. When he was designing the building in Cupertino, one of the things that he did was he was fanatical about making it so that people ran into each other on purpose. The hallways were designed to all filter into one area. You had lunch into one area. He even went as far as to, um, at one point, making it so that you had to walk 10 minutes just to go to the bathroom. Now, Mm -hmm. that ended up getting shot down because of um, certain things. But Mm -hmm. he, he said that, and he was adamant about that innovation and genius happens from these chance encounters with people pooling around and and, um, collaborating um, just on the off chance. Mm -hmm. They weren't forced to collaborate. They just collaborated because, you know, Bob and whatever would talk to Tim and be like, oh, you know, what do you got going on, Tim? Oh, you know, we've got this really crazy display that we're working with. And and then they start to talk. And then Bob's like, well, hey, you know, like, actually that display might work really, that technology might work really well for what I'm working on. And that's how that stuff happens. So, sure. yeah, it's hard to argue with a the most um, successful company currently on the marketplace. Mm-hmm. So um, I absolutely agree with you that there is something to environment. Um, mm-hmm. One other small story on that. When I when sure. I had a shop, I was fanatical about having horizontal space. I did not mm-hmm. want any horizontal space in my shop at mm-hmm. all. And it used to annoy my guys a lot. They, they're like, I don't have anywhere to set this down or blah, blah, blah. And I was like, yeah, because if you set it down somewhere, you'll never pick it back up and they will be clu- And sure. then every single shelf will just be clutter, mm-hmm. clutter, clutter. Mm-hmm. I would go into shops that have lots of mm-hmm. horizontal space. Guess what? Mm-hmm. Just clutter everywhere. And the cluttier, sure. um, more cluttered your environment, the more cluttered your mind. It's just, just the mm-hmm. way that it is right human mind cannot function properly in clutter it can't it it, it drags you mm-hmm. down you go in there you immediately feel yourself like oh god look at this place it's just such a mess whether you actively sure. you know point out point it out or not it's just what happens mm-hmm. so yeah um yeah environment i think plays a way bigger deal than what i think a, a lot of people um give it credence yeah and to your point you know the shop that you're looking at right now doesn't allow any parts in it we don't want to view parts. You can only have parts if you're taking them off the car, or you're putting them on the car. Otherwise, they go to another building. Um, no shelves. Shelves are a place for somebody to put something that they don't know where to put yeah. it. In most, you know, most cases, of course, practically speaking, a shelf has a great reason. But the, if, if it's parts that are going to go on the shelf, then it goes in a parts room, and only the parts that are going to be used or whatever go on there and not the trash and everything else. So, so it's real important. We also, to your point... Um, technicians won't say it, but if you can read a tech and you can read a human being, um, you can always tell if somebody's overwhelmed or they're stressed. And a lot of that is because they see all the work that they have. In today's times, you know, the industry has been blessed and plagued with a lot of work. And so technicians feel the pressure of that. It's too many things to do. You can have a honeydew list on the weekend and it's just too long and you're stressed about it. But, you know, if you just had one item on each page and, and you know and you can get that done that would be much better so we make sure that the techs don't see any more work than they need to see even though they're assigned to it one car at a time two cars maybe tops um 
we have disassemble lanes in, in a separate area. So this shop is not traditional to where a tech has three or four stalls. His stall is the entire company. So where he pulls a frame, he'll go there. Um, he'll have a stall that's dedicated to him for repair, but all disassemble and reassemble, which is over 50% of the average repair today, is done on separate lanes that are expandable to fit the space that he needs. It can be a short space, a long space, a wide space, a tall space, whatever. So that's why we have tracks in the company, throughout the company, for escape lanes. Um, and uh, so the technician gets the whole shop. But like I say, it's very important to not uh, have people see things that overwhelm them. And uh, I'm not downplaying that the technician is, um, I'm bringing them up to, to where they deserve to be, that they're human and that just too much is too much sometimes. So they got 15 cars and whip, 20 cars and whip. They just need to see the one they're working on and then someone else bring them the other one. So we do have a, uh, an interesting service here at this facility that we serve the technicians, whatever they want, they get. Um, some people will say that sounds nuts. But you know what they want to do, Adam? They, they just want to make money. And so if they ask for a car, let's get it for them. If they have a need of something, their stall to be cleaned because they don't want to clean it for whatever the reason may be, let's get it cleaned. These are simple things to do. So we have full-time housekeeping in the shop. We don't like dust. We don't like dirt. We don't like smells. So we have scents throughout the shop, you know, that are imported into the shop um and into the uh, office areas uh for customers to have that good remembrance of wow that was an interesting citrus you know or what have you not have that body shop smells and that works the same with the technician so um again it just goes back to the environment a really great movie um you might have mentioned before on your other podcast or what have you that i highly recommend for any body shop owner to look at and there's plenty of them out there but one in particular is the founder and the story of how McDonald's had uh, done their processes and the challenges that they had and the importance of franchising or multi-shop ownership and, uh, and the downsides of being singular and, and being ordinary and being yesterday are really highlighted. And so, um, you know, when people watch that, you know, they'll, they'll pick up on how important process is, but they'll also, I hope, pick up on the intent of the individual who has a vision and how he sticks to intent and that's really important so you know people will ask you know um how do you be successful at something and how do i turn my shop into this and that or i want to do this and i'll always tell them that i learned from a gentleman uh, named richard flint who was a very good motivational speaker and i met him probably 30 years ago and i never forget it he said, you have to ask yourself three things in order to be successful. And one is, what do I want to do? Why do I want to do it? And what am I willing to do to get there? And if you don't answer all three of those, it's just not going to happen. And the what are you willing to do is super, super important because you can want something, you can know why you want it, but you're just not willing to put, you know, put the time into it. I've been blessed to have a lot of people across the country call up and ask advice. I myself has reached out to these to other people and some of these folks for advice myself. And what's fascinating, and there's nothing more flattering than somebody says, I want that. I want to do what you're doing. What do I do? You tell them how to do it. They talk and talk about they're going to do it. They're going to do it. They're going to do it. But they, don't an they can't answer those three questions. They don't understand the third question. You know, what am I willing to do to make sure it happens? And that's where they stop. 
So I can tell you for every hundred questions I'm asked or compliments that are given about how they want to do something and turn that, you know, do their, do that in their shop. 98 don't do it. Yeah. They couldn't answer that question. They didn't want to commit, but they just wanted it. And in today's generation, the new generation does have a need and a desire to just say, I want it. And they don't know what it takes to, to put into it. So you can get anything and have anything you want by just saying, this is what I'm going to do and I'm going to commit to it. Pretty simple one-on-one stuff, but uh, it's up to the individual. I've done, I've done just a little bit of business coaching. It's not something I really try to do too much of, but mm-hmm. you know, every once in a while you get a message or a phone call or a conversation with someone there that you ask me, you know, hey, what are you working on? And they go, oh, well, I mean, I can't really tell you. And I'm like, yeah. well, why not? <laughs> and they're like, uh-huh. well, I don't want... I don't want someone to get the idea and then take it away from me. And immediately sure. the first thing that comes to mind is, man, you are in a wrong headspace. Do you, do you yeah. have any idea? First of all, the likelihood of someone being interested in what you're doing um, sure. enough to like try and action on that is so mm-hmm. incredibly small. First of all. Sure. And then secondly, ideas are a dime a dozen. It's the action on mm-hmm. those ideas that actually moves things forwards and actually counts. It's it's sure. the likelihood of someone actually taking your idea and moving forward with it is so enormously small. It's actually laughable. And then I don't really usually want to talk to those people ever again because they're living in fear. And that's not a good place to operate mm-hmm. from. Who wants to operate in fear? Yeah. Um, sure. David, it has been. Yeah an absolute pleasure talking with you. <laughs> oh, good. Uh, good. Well, thanks for having me today. Yeah. It's, um, I'm hoping that we can have you on the podcast later on down the road when, you know, you get some more technologies rolling out with flashback forward, which I'm sure, you know, will sure. happen within the next couple of years. Um, yeah. and, uh, would love to keep updated on your, on your guys's progress. That'd be great. Yeah. Looking forward to awesome. it. Well, I hope you have a great rest of the day and thanks again for coming on. Okay, you too. Thank you, Adam. You've been listening to the Auto Body Podcast, presented by Clarity Coat. Our passion is to talk to and about anyone in the industry, from painters, body guys, manufacturers, and anyone in between. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Make sure to like, rate, and review. And we'll be back soon. But in the meantime, visit us at ClarityCoat.com and find us on Facebook and YouTube at Clarity Coat. See you next time on the Auto Body Podcast.